A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The new types of materials we're working on,、uh, they can be ideally printed like, like newspapers. And we're trying to not only make things more efficient, but make things better and cheaper, also a lot lighter.、Uh, you can put them on different windows and things, so there are a lot more applications as well, a much faster energy payback time. There are a lot of benefits if we can get this stuff out there into the world. Kia ora, no mai hau mai kito tata au huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clerk and Canon Tene. With summer nearly here, we're looking at all things solar today. Later on in the show, Liz Garten finds out about the future of personal UV detectors. But first up, I caught up with Dr. Michael Price. I'm a researcher here at Victoria University of Wellington, working on new. Material science of physics and chemistry of different types of solar panels and light emitting devices. And the work he's doing could make solar power more accessible for all of us. We're making solar cells out of molecules, or you can call them organic based, carbon based inks, or plastics, you could, you could call them as well. Just stay behind this curtain for one、yeah. sec, I'll just check that the laser's、um, safe. I visited Michael at the university's ultra fast laser lab. Yep, all good. So, what are we looking at? Yeah, you're looking at lenses, mirrors,、um, prisms, a delay stage, it's a thing that moves back and forwards, and a couple of large ultra fast lasers. There's a lot going on in this lab space. Black curtains are draped across both ends. Normally it's in darkness, but with the lights on, you can see an array of computers and a tall metal frame over the workspace to keep wires out of the way. The large metal bench is dotted with holes for attachment of different things to control and direct light. Metal dividers give it kind of a labyrinth feel, which is essentially what it is. The bench top, crammed full of the lenses, mirrors, and prisms, guides the light along a path. And in the middle of it all is a laser. They're inside these, these boxes, and so the, when we switch the laser on, you can't see the beam unless it's really dusty in here, which would be bad. But you could follow the beam path from this really complicated maze through all the different one inch mirrors and different lenses and special crystals. We use those crystals to turn, say, a, a red laser into a multi colored laser. And then those laser beams will hit our solar panel sort of material, and they'll hit them in, in different sequences of pulses, and then we'll, we'll analyze how much light the solar panel material absorbs、um, at different time delays on this you know, ultra fast time scale, and then that tells us how we can make better materials. And he means ultra fast. They're able to create light pulses that are a few femtoseconds long. That's 10 to the minus 15 seconds. This gives them snapshots of what's happening to the electrons within the material. Hence the bank of computing power. They're to control the devices, but 
also to collect all the information from them. Yeah, we end up with a lot of data. That's one of the great joys of the job, sifting through all of that data and, um, and converting it to kind of a story of what's happening inside the material. Michael sits down with me in a quieter room to tell me just what is happening inside the material and why it's so exciting. What I'm interested in is what you'd see on your, on your rooftops and things, and that's solar photovoltaics. And at its core, it's where you have semiconductors sandwiched between metal electrodes and light. So particles of light, which are photons, come in and you get electric current out. So photons in, electrons out. It's the, it's the key message for how um, solar panels or... I often call them solar cells. A solar panel's just made up of lots of different solar cells. That's how they work. But it's obviously, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. But that key of energy coming in, striking a material, and then from the material, electrons are released. And that material is what you and many others are working on all of the time, trying to make more efficient. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we're trying to not only make things more efficient, but make things better and cheaper. There are a lot of benefits if we can get this stuff out there into the world. OK, let's have a little history with our science. So the photovoltaic effect was discovered in the mid-1800s by a guy named Edmund Becquerel. And he just chucked some bits of metal into a salty solution and he, and he shone some light on it and got a bit of voltage and a bit of current. Of course, scientists tinkered away with this effect, leading to other developments. But it wasn't really until the 1950s that solar power took its next big leap forward, when scientists at Bell Labs in the US discovered they could dope silicon. Doping just means you're introducing small amounts of impurities in the silicon, the crystalline silicon, which gives you sort of an excess of electrons, or you can, you can also have a kind of a deficiency of electrons, so that gives you a, a positive or P-type layer and a negative or N-type layer. And you sandwich those together, and that's the birth of the modern silicon solar cell, which is kind of 95% of the market today. These silicon solar panels are the ones you see today on people's roofs or in large arrays. They're made from crystals of silicon. You'll see the kind of blue polycrystalline solar cells or the darker monocrystalline ones. But they work the same way. Sunlight hits the solar panel and is absorbed by the silicon. Electrons within the silicon are then kind of fired up. Michael calls it excited. And they begin moving around, leaving behind a positively charged hole. This is where the doping to create those P and N layers becomes really important. Without it, the electrons would just get loose, randomly move around, and then join back up with a hole. But direct current electricity is a nice flow of electrons in one direction, and that's what the P and N layers help with. The junction that forms between these two layers keeps the electrons and holes apart and creates an electric field. When sunlight hits this doped, layered silicon, all the freed electrons move to one layer and the positive holes move to the other. Then, if you connect a wire between the two, bam, the electrons will flow along the wire to recombine with the holes. And flow of electrons equals electricity equals power for our needs. Michael is quick to point out that silicon is pretty good. 
You know, it's cheap, it's abundant. But? But it is limited in its efficiency, the thermodynamic limit. You know, how much power can you get from a standard amount of sunlight coming in? Technically, it's about 30% for silicon. So that's a physical limit? No, no matter how much you tinker with the silicon, you're only going to be able to convert 30% of the sunlight into electricity? Yeah, for a standard silicon design like what we've got now. And so if we want to beat that, we need to do a whole lot of very clever clever workarounds with our material science and our understanding of the physics and things. Which is exactly what Michael is working on. The ways we can bump up that number is if we can harvest more of the solar spectrum. So the sun obviously emits ultraviolet light, it emits light in the visible spectrum, all the different colours, and then there's a fair bit of light in the infrared. And so if we could harvest more of the infrared, more of the ultraviolet, that would be one way that we could up that efficiency limit. And some of the materials we're looking at can help with that. Specifically, Michael's looking at replacing silicon with organic inks. And just quickly, when we talk about organic in this context, it means it's something carbon-based that's been made in the lab. Instead of having to grow the silicon painstakingly at 1,000 degrees and then cut it into a wafer, you mix up your ink in a solution and just splurt it on a piece of metal and then that's your solar cell. I wish it was quite that easy, but it's, that's essentially what it is. Splurt is the technical term. Yeah. And you could splurt it on anything. Metal, sure, but also plastic to make flexible solar cells that can bend. But of course, it's not that easy. The problem is that in these organic materials, the electron and the hole, they can't escape each other. And they're attracted to each other because they're positive and negative. And so the electron hole go around as this whole entity called an exciton. And so you, you need to think of all these clever ways of splitting up that exciton. And um, so that's, that's been the key challenge for our field. In the past, there's been one particular way of approaching this. To split apart the exciton, we've needed to blend two materials together, two types of organic materials with different energy levels that can enable us to split apart the excitons and get us these free electrons, which is the key. And there's a huge variety of, of materials that we can make, which is part of what makes the research so interesting. But it makes it really hard when you're trying to improve one material, but you then need to check, oh, will it blend with this other material? But then the team decided to see what would happen if they used a molecule named Y6. We've seen that actually when you shine light on that material, you can create free electrons immediately and you don't need to blend the material with other materials to split apart the excitons. So Y6 is the organic molecule du jour. Love Y6. Yeah. Amazing molecule. Um, It's a good thing that I like it because we've been studying it for a couple of years here, non-stop. Michael his joint lead author, Dr. Paul Hume, and their colleagues have this year had the findings of all that work published in Nature. A big deal in the science world, and something that Michael hopes will kickstart a fresh approach to solar power. It's been hard to actually get it out there because it is changing the paradigm a little bit. Um, researchers will hopefully start looking in these different directions, looking to making solar panels in a completely different way. Yeah, so we're certainly excited about it and we're trying to convince people that it is important. On, you know, on one level, it shouldn't be so surprising, but on another level, the whole 
research community. You know, thousands of researchers have been doing um, things a certain way for the last 30 years. So it's going to be hard to um, turn that ship around immediately. Following on from this discovery, Michael is now investigating whether Y6 can be doped, like silicon, to become more efficient and stable. You need to make sure that these solar panels can last many, many years. And that's one of the wonderful things about silicon currently is that the panel itself will last 20 years easily. So with these new materials, we need to make sure that we're aiming for that kind of level of longevity as well. He sees himself following in some very big footprints. Obviously, in New Zealand, um, Alan McDiamond won his Nobel Prize for the discovery of polymers that could conduct electricity. And so it feels great, you know, we're we're working on something that's, that's really important for the world, making these better solar panels, and it, we're also kind of directly continuing on that line of inquiry. We just need to, we need to keep going, and then hopefully, eventually, people will see them on their own roofs, and, yeah, that would be really good. How far away from that are we? Uh, the question great, that every scientist loves. a great question. Mm. I was actually reading some interviews with... Uh, some people in my field from 10 years ago and they were saying, you know, we're, in 10 years' time, hopefully we'll have, um, we'll have these out in the real world. And we're still not there, but we're definitely a few steps closer. I honestly couldn't say. There's some really exciting developments. Um, maybe not immediately in New Zealand will we see these different types of solar panels, but in the UK and in America, there should be some, some of these... Um, we're looking at, we're on a five-year timescale rather than a 20-year timescale or a one-year timescale. That's exciting. Yeah. You know, all the modelling shows if we, if we want globally to have um, a world that has any chance of staying at below 1.5 degrees C of, of warming, globally we need sort of 15 to 30% of all of our energy coming from solar panels. So we need, you know, everything we can. Uh, lots of silicon but also some of these more exciting and new things, you know, maybe on our windows or... Um, roofs of your tent. Roofs of your tent, yeah. Your sails and your sailing boat. Yep. Tarp over your deck. <laughs> yeah. And even just in the places on your roof that aren't... Um, where it's difficult to install a silicon solar panel, but you can just staple gun a flexible solar cell up there that reduces the price of installation a lot as well. It's an exciting prospect for the future, but Michael doesn't want anyone waiting for him or any other scientist to make the big final breakthrough they need. You shouldn't wait for these new materials to come out. If you want to get solar panels on your roof, get it now. You know, it could be a while before these new technologies come out and the current technology is really good. It's still obviously really important that we keep working and we, we can always do better but um, there's a lot out there that's really good already. Thanks to Dr. Michael Price, Research Fellow in the School of Chemical and Physical Sciences at Teheranawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. Now, the flip side of the sun's energy are the harmful UV rays which can damage our DNA and result in skin cancer. In our next story, Liz Garten catches up with a researcher investigating the use of wearable UV detectors to help kids learn about sun-safe behaviour. So, I asked a few kids if they know what UV stands for. No, 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 no. Oh, we got ultra vision. Someone's been watching too much Marvel. 
These are primary aged kids. Half of them are mine. And yes, we did have a conversation after the tape stopped rolling. The good news is they do know how to protect themselves from UV or ultraviolet radiation. Or a hat or stay in the shade. I put sunscreen on. Wear sunblock and uh, sunglasses. And they do know why they need to. So it doesn't burn you. Sunburn. 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 And we'll get sunburned and it will really hurt. But we could do better. We really need to do better. New Zealand and Australia have the unwanted title of having the highest rates of melanoma in the world. And in 2020, research found New Zealand had the highest death rates from melanoma in the world. Add to that, already this year our UV levels are higher than usual. NIWA data shows UV, UV radiation levels are already averaging higher than last year. Have been 5% higher on average and up to 10% higher. A UV index month. level of 3 is enough to damage skin. It's already reached level 8 this week. So UV levels are something we all need to be aware of. And it just makes sense to start young. A large percentage of your lifetime exposure occurs before the age of 18. This is Martin Allen, a professor in engineering at the University of Canterbury. He specialises in nanotechnology and electronics sensors. And one of the things he's built is a UV detector to help make this invisible threat more visible. So if you think as a child, you're typically outdoors, you know, for one to four hours a day. When you become an adult and you get a job, you don't come outside anywhere near as much. So you can get a large percentage of your lifetime exposure before 18. Your skin is more vulnerable to damage them. And we know that the behaviour, attitudes and knowledge you pick up at school last into adulthood. So it really is a sort of golden opportunity to uh, make a difference. Martin moved to New Zealand about 20 years ago and taught science at Lincoln High School. Coming from the UK, he was floored by the intensity of the sun here. Part of my responsibilities were to do playground duty and I'd come off, you know, uh, doing about just half an hour of playground duty, absolutely sort of wiped out by how strong the sun was. And I was thinking, well, how much UV exposure are these kids getting? So he developed an electronic UV decimeter to find out. So it's about 35 millimetres in diameter. It looks like a, a white disc. Uh, that's because the, the front of it has a Teflon, uh, a Teflon cap. And they need the Teflon because the Teflon is a really good UV UV diffuser and it doesn't get damaged by UV. So what that does, it makes sure that the sensor responds in the same way as human skin. So all sensors have an angular response. If you look at your arm, your arm can take in light from all different angles. So what the Teflon is doing is diffusing the UV in from all different angles and making it behave like your skin. The backing plate can be printed to either have a watch strap or a pin to attach it to clothing or hats. It's also got a battery and a microprocessor. All up, it weighs about 19 grams and is the size of a 50-cent coin. I've been stopped a few times when wearing them when I've come out of a shop because the security guard has thought it was one of the tags they pin on to stop people walking out of the store with things on. So they're a bit smaller than that. They look, they look a little bit like that. So the sun, our closest star, gives off a whole bunch of radiation into space, waves of energy. We like to divide up this radiation based on wavelengths. The stuff we call sunlight hitting us here on Earth, we divide into three bands – infrared, visible light and ultraviolet. Visible light is aptly named because we can see it. Our eyes have evolved to pick up a whole rainbow worth of light. 
red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo and violet. They all have slightly different wavelengths. But we can't see below red, infrared, or above violet, what we call ultraviolet. And while UV only makes up a very small fraction of the sunlight that makes it through Earth's atmosphere, it's the stuff that can do the most damage. UV light's different from visible light because it's got a shorter wavelength, it's scattered more, so more of it comes in sideways than than visible light, and also it can come through sort of cloud as well. You can get really badly burnt on those light cloudy days because the UV is getting through the cloud, but the the visible light isn't. So you really need a good detector um, that can ignore the visible and detect the UV. And what you need is something called a wide band gap semiconductor. And these are materials which only respond in the UV. So the sensing element that we use in these devices are, are special wide band gap semiconductors based around things like gallium nitride. There's others like gallium oxide, silicon carbide, but you've got to use these wide band gap semiconductors because they're the only ones that can ignore the visible. Because it's not like UV is just a single wavelength of light. It's also across a spectrum, which we like to further divide up. This is why you might see UVA and UVB mentioned on your sunscreen. UVA has longer wavelengths that can penetrate deeper into your skin, but it has less energy than UVB, so it causes less damage to cells. But both can cause sunburn, premature ageing and cancer. And UVA is way more abundant than UVB, so you really want to protect yourself from both. There's actually a third kind, you guessed it, UVC, which is even more damaging, but luckily for us, the Earth's atmosphere filters it all out before it reaches us. So anyway, the device, it tells you two things. How strong the sunburning part of the UV is, based on the internationally recognised UV index, and how much you're getting. You get what the level is instantaneously, whether it's low, medium, high, very high, extreme, on a scale of 1 to 13. And it also tells you how much total sunburning radiation you've had. But in terms of warning you that it's time to get out of the sun, that's a bit more complicated. I'm a physical scientist. I work in nanotechnology. So normally when we do research, there's normally a right answer and a wrong answer. Uh, When you start working in medical research and preventive medicine, you soon realise that um, it's more like shades of grey. We all know that excessive UV is bad for you, but no UV is really bad for you as well because we need UV radiation to synthesize vitamin D in our bodies. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's a two-edged sword, if you like. And the UV dose has different impacts on different people. People with very fair skin, you know, a given dose of one standard Units would would cause a redness of your skin, whereas people with darker skin might need four or five of those doses. And then there's where you would wear it to best indicate whether you're getting burnt. You get burnt on the parts of your body which are directly facing the sun. So typically the top of your shoulders, the tip of your nose, um, you know, maybe the top of your head. So you'd have to wear the sensors on those parts. So you'd have to you know, you'd have to correct for that. So it's better to use these things for education, I think, than as a a burnometer because, um, you know, you could get it wrong. Using these decimeters as education tools was an idea put to Martin by Kiwi expat professor Miles Coburn at the University of California. They wanted to introduce some self-discovery so the children found it out for themselves because all the 
sort of education research points to the fact that if you get children to learn things from, from themselves rather than being told about them, they're more likely to take that on board. And it worked really well. Uh, it improved knowledge and behaviour. Martin tried a similar programme with a small number of New Zealand schools in 2018. Our, our version is uh, the children do a, a two-part investigation. The first part is that they investigate the effectiveness of shade in reducing harmful UV exposure. So we get them to take the instruments out into their school environment and pick a couple of places, which is in direct sun, places where they you know, may have their lunch or they may do sports activities or it may be there's a playground there. And then we get them to choose a couple of places where there's some shade, either a shade sail or under a tree. And we get them to measure the difference in the UV levels in the direct sun and the shade. Um, and then the second part is we get them to investigate how effective sunglasses, uh, school uniform, uh, sunscreen is at reducing harmful exposure as well. And then we bring them back to in the classroom. We can download all that data from the decimeter and produce a graph of all their results. They can label those results and see for themselves exactly what's gone on. And then we encourage them to make their own conclusions. So they're like doing a proper scientific experiment where they're self-learning the nature of UV radiation. As with many things, the pandemic brought everything to a screeching halt, but Martin is keen to get the programme going again. He's also been tinkering with the decimeters themselves, and a lot has changed since he came up with his first device nearly 15 years ago now. Using better sensors, making them smaller, and in the last couple of years we've actually made um, a set of them solar-powered. It's amazing what you can power off a little solar cell. So we use a solar panel on this and we can power the microprocessor, which controls all the um, electronics to make the thing work. It can power up the sensor and also can power up a little display so you can actually display the numbers in real time. And you can do all that with a little solar cell, even run LEDs off them to, with different colours to indicate different levels. Yeah, so it's it's quite nice. And he has plans to develop them further. The next thing that the, the researchers that we're working with, the epidemiologists want, they, they do want Bluetooth capability in these devices. So they do want to be able to send messages when the levels become high, very high or extreme. You get a warning then that the levels are high and, you know, I seek shade, seek pre- prevention. So there is that interactive possibility. He's got other ideas too. What would be nice is to measure a whole wavelength range across the UV spectrum in one go. So the current sensors are, are the composition of the semiconductor is tuned to have the same response as human skin. So it has the same UV wavelength response as your skin does towards harmful radiation. The only difference is that... You know, your skin is a UV sensor, but trouble is that it doesn't indicate that you've had too much UV until the next day, and then you go red, and then the skin takes a couple of weeks to recover again, and it's not a good thing. So these these devices obviously respond straight away. Uh, what we'd like to do is to measure the whole UV spectrum on a device. That would be really cool. Uh, we'd certainly like to be able to measure UVB, UVA, invisible light at the same time, so we could show people that, look, even though the you know visible light has gone down because the cloud has come over, look, the UV is still getting through, so we can actually show them that as well. So I guess, yeah, making the sensors a little bit more sophisticated in terms of being able to uh, measure different wavelengths. But it's not essential. And learning more about UV itself could lead to future developments. It would be also nice to know whether 
exact, you know, same wavelengths that cause sunburn are the ones which make vitamin D in your body. I've always felt that it's a design flaw, the same UV radiation which causes, you know, uh, melanoma, uh, skin cancer, is the same stuff we need to make vitamin D. So there are some gaps in our knowledge about how our skin actually responds to UV light. I know that, you know, that blue light's really important because there are receptors in your retina which respond to the blue part of the spectrum. It lowers blood pressure. Uh, it produces um, serotonin. Uh, that's why you feel good when you're outside in the sun. So there's all these different parts of the output from the sun which have an effect on us. Maybe have a sensor which measures the blue as well as the UVA and, and UVB would be great to try and understand these other effects. But yeah, how we respond to light is, is a fascinating area of science. Thanks, Liz. Thanks also to Professor Martin Allen of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Canterbury and Principal Investigator at the McDiarmid Institute. This episode was produced by Liz Garten and me, Claire Kincannon, with help from our Changing World assistant producer, Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, we are everywhere. Find and follow Our Changing World on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for following the show. Have you checked out any of the other excellent RNZ podcasts? There's a huge range on all kinds of topics. Visit the Podcasts and Series tab on the main RNZ website to have a look. In the latest release, The Art of Entertaining, Jamie and Maria host a uniquely New Zealand dinner party following party planning etiquette from the 70s. Search for The Art of Entertaining on your usual podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai tō wiki. Mā te wā. 